Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Julian Morgans, and you're listening to What It Was Like, the show that asks people who have lived through big, dramatic events what it was like. Hey, and welcome to the show. If you're new here, it's great to have you. And if you're old here, well, it's just nice to have you back. Before we start today, before we properly start, I want to do two things. And first up, I just want to say thanks. Uh, so something that's that's really nice that's happened over the last few weeks is that more people started to listen to our show. Uh, we started up, I think it was uh, early 2022. And, you know, when you start a show, like a brand new show, you get a couple of listens and you're like, oh, it's growing. You know, that's exciting. But it's not exactly... Um, economically sustainable. It's, you know, it's not like a full-time job. I'd probably describe it as like a bit of a hobby, a bit of a a side hustle kind of thing. But we've started to get a bit more traction. We're we're just getting more listens. Um, I'll just tell you, we're getting probably a couple of thousand every day. And it's suddenly seeming like a thing, like this is my job. I'm suddenly just doing this full-time. And I love that, by the way. I I just, I really love doing this show. I love making podcasts. Uh, I love talking to people, creating stories, finding stories. So just by listening well, specifically by listening to our ads, uh, you've you've made that possible. So uh, thank you. Really, thank you. The second thing I want to do is introduce myself. And why? Why would I want to introduce myself? You know, I kind of do. I start every show with, hi, I'm Julian Morgan. So you know who I am. But But here's my thinking, right? Every time I listen to a new podcast, I'm like, okay, I like this. But but who's this host? Like, who even is this guy? Uh, and what what credentials do they have? What what authority do they have to deliver this story into my ears? So I just thought I'd cover it off. I'm Julian Morgans. I live in Melbourne, Australia, uh, and I guess my authority is that I've been a journalist for about ten years. I was editor of Vice for a long time, and I used to have another show, another podcast called Extremes, 
Some of you might know it. But when I left Vice, I left that behind and I created this show. Uh, I should say we actually, my business partner and producer, Rachel Tuffery, uh, we created this show. So it's not a big team. There's two of us. Uh, we've got a guy who helps out with the edit as well. So yeah, that's me. That's Rachel. That's how the show came about. Now let's do a story. Today, we're going to talk about the making of the 1997 mega blockbuster Titanic. Because everyone knows that movie, right? Um, and we all know it was a huge success. It grossed almost $2 billion at the global box office, which made it the highest grossing film ever at that time. But here's something that you probably don't know. And it's that Titanic was one of the most over-budget, over-schedule, and generally mishap-ridden film shoots in Hollywood history. So to illustrate that, here's some facts. So Titanic originally had a budget of $125 million. That's what uh, the production company, 20th Century Fox, that's what they gave to James Cameron to, to make the film. But they blew past that really quickly. And it eventually landed a little bit over $200 million, which made it the most expensive film ever made at the time. Uh, and, and the result of that was that 20th Century Fox were freaking out. The executives were really worried that if the film was anything less than a huge hit, it would massively affect them financially. There was some concern that it could actually tank, like literally sink, ironically sink the film studio. Um, and, and that motivated them to send an executive down to Mexico, where they were shooting a lot of the scenes, to talk to James Cameron into trying to cut costs. And the story goes that James Cameron threw a tantrum uh, and he quit. He just walked off the set and had to be cajoled back into finishing the movie. Now, while researching this story, I've been reading industry press, like Hollywood industry press that was published around 96, 97. Um, there was a lot of journalists in that period who were relishing how much 20th Century Fox were putting themselves out on the line. Um, so Newsweek published a now famous headline that actually read, 20th Century Fox, glob, glob, glob. Kind of funny, kind of cutting. Variety, you know, Variety magazine, they actually had a daily Titanic watch calendar uh, on their front page, and they had the 20th Century Fox logo over the top of a ship that was just sinking slightly more every day. Now, that was the studio side of things, but the actors and the crew struggled too. So Kate Winslet described the shoot to the LA Times as an ordeal, uh, and she talks about how she nearly drowned on set. And I'm just going to read a paragraph from the article. Winslet and her co-star, Leonardo DiCaprio, were dashing along the deck of the ship, pursued by a giant rushing wave, only to find themselves trapped by a closed gate. They opened it, but a long, heavy coat she was wearing snagged on the gate, and she was submerged between the rising waters. I had to sort of shimmy out of the coat to get free, she recalls. I had no breath left. I thought I'd burst. And James Cameron just said, yeah, okay, let's go again. That was his attitude. I didn't want to be a wimp so I didn't complain. And that's another huge part of this story. Okay, so James Cameron, legendary film director. Everyone knows the name. And the reason for that is James Cameron is kind of a freak. Of the four highest grossing films of all time, James Cameron has written and directed three of them. Okay, that's Avatar 1, Avatar 2, uh, and Titanic in fourth place. Uh, he's also on the board at NASA, or he was for a while. He literally designs and pilots submersibles to go and explore the lowest points in the Earth's crust. And then he somehow got this ability to make just the, the world's most popular film, just time and time again. So, you know, there's, there's a lot to admire there. But 
Apparently, he's just an absolute maniac to work for. Everyone in Hollywood calls him Jim. Okay, our guest today, you'll you'll hear him say Jim Cameron a lot. But from an outsider perspective, for me, just a regular civilian, we all know him as James Cameron. Um, but yeah, here's what Kate Winslet said about him. He has a temper like you wouldn't believe. As it was, the actors got off lightly. I think Jim knew that he couldn't shout at us the way that he did to his crew because our performances wouldn't be any good. So that's all the background to today's episode. Shooting Titanic was incredibly punishing, and that's been well documented. But here's a little story that somehow flew under the radar. The thing is that at the very start of the shoot, somebody spiked the crew's food with a powerful hallucinogenic drug called PCP, and about 40 members of the cast and crew ended up in hospital. Now, I said the drug was called PCP. PCP stands for phenylcyclohexylpipiridine, and yeah, it's a miracle I got that out. But all you need to know really is that it's quite similar to to ketamine, like the molecule is quite similar to ketamine, uh, and it has a similar effect. So I've never tried it, but reports online say that it typically slows down time. It's got like this time dilation effect, and it makes people feel as though they're living in a like a ridiculous dream. The other thing that I want to cover off is that this happened, this event happened in Nova Scotia, in Canada, and it was right at the start of the shoot uh, when they were working on some of the film's very first opening sequences. You might remember that Titanic actually opens in the modern era, in the 90s, with a bunch of treasure hunters led by Bill Paxton. Uh, they're trying to find the heart of the ocean, which was the jewel. Uh, you remember Kate Winslet's character had this necklace. And yeah, as an old woman, she tells this story of how she met Leo's character, Jack Dawson, and as well shooting this stuff that the crew had their clam chowder spiked. So no, Kate Winslet, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, they weren't there. They weren't affected. But Bill Paxton, he actually was there. He was affected. And we'll hear about that. And we're going to hear about it from a guy named Jamie Barber. Now, Jamie Barber worked on Titanic as a first assistant camera operator. I'll just give you his bio. So he grew up in Southern California. His dad was actually in charge of manufacturing film cameras at Panavision. So he got a job as a film loader. And from there, he became a focus puller before he landed a job as Caleb Deschanel's assistant and camera operator. Uh, And this is a name you're going to hear a lot today. So Jamie talks a lot about Caleb Deschanel. And all you need to know is that Caleb was originally hired as Titanic's director of photography. And a fun fact... Caleb is also Zoe Deschanel's dad, as in the star of New Girl. Anyway, Jamie is an amazing camera operator, cinematographer, director, and we're very lucky to get him on the show today to talk about what it was like shooting Titanic and what happened when the whole film crew started tripping balls and had to be rushed to the hospital. So I bring you Jamie Bob. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay, so tell me about the moment that you first saw the Titanic script. It was, so Caleb had gotten the job to shoot Titanic, and so production had sent the, sent the script over to us, um, and you start reading it and realize that this was an incredible script and it was going to be a hit. I mean, we all knew going in that this was going to be a big movie and, and that we were working on something that was definitely going to make some money. How did you know it was going to be a hit? Because because here's the thing. James Cameron was famous for sci-fi. He'd done Terminator. He'd done Aliens. Uh, these are big action movies. This was the first time he'd turned his hand to period dramas. 
why why a period drama right it's funny because jim he does understand human emotions and going through the human process it doesn't matter if it's a period piece or a sci-fi or whatever the human story is still the human story mm. and jim is a really good storyteller i i've heard that uh james cameron's a pretty hard director to work for in some ways well it's really fun because jim when you're in prep and you're doing all the stuff that you need to do at prep and you're going to dinner and we're all hanging out together. Jim is fantastic. He's very funny, tells great stories, really gregarious human being and very interesting. When you start shooting, it's Jim movie, Jim's movie and Jim's movie only. He's the man. All decisions have to go through him. Caleb, when it comes to the visuals, is very, very controlling as well. So those two... We're at loggerheads quite often. I mean, even though in pre-production, they had lots of conversations, stuff like that. But when it came time to shooting, it was Jim's way or no way. So mm. that's where we, we began to feel that there was going to be some dis disruption. Bit of tension. Oh, boy, okay. was there tension. Okay. So, so Caleb got signed up to do Titanic. You got yep. the script through him. You got hired. You read the script. It felt like a hit. So you start shooting... Tell me about it. So we start, uh, we originally, the first part of the shooting of the movie, we started at the beginning of the movie. Um, we needed to do it in Nova Scotia only because the, uh, the ship that we were using, which was being brought over from Europe, was the Keldish. That is a Russian ship and had originally been a spy ship. So it wasn't allowed in U.S. waters. So the closest place we could really go is up into Nova Scotia, where we could shoot it up there. So we um, we were getting ready. We were fin we were finishing up shooting in in Nova Scotia. We were actually in Dartmouth, which is right across the bay from Halifax, which is where our docks were and the warehouses that we used for stages. And we were uh, our last night of shooting. We were going to leave then and go back to California. We had a scene to shoot in Malibu before we moved to Mexico for the rest of the movie. And we broke at midnight, and it was our last dinner in Nova Scotia. So we had this big seafood fest, and it was great. There was lobster, oysters, and there was seafood chowder. There was really, it was really, really good food. So we broke for dinner at midnight, had dinner, and uh, at 1 o'clock in the morning, my Canadian trainee started not feeling very well. And so I went. We called the medic over, and they thought it was some sort of allergic reaction maybe to the shellfish. So he was run off to the hospital. I went in to talk to Caleb and to talk to Jim Cameron and tell him that my Canadian trainee was having issues and we would be down uh, a crew member. And Jim called over Josh McLaughlin, who was the first assistant director, and they left. And in hindsight, what I heard was that Jim had gone into the bathroom put his finger down his throat because he had started not feeling well and he was trying to induce vomiting to so that yeah. whatever was in his system would be out. And all of a sudden at that time, I started feeling a little strange. When you say strange, what do you mean? Well, the first thing that happens is my arm started going numb and then the world begins to tunnel in a little bit and gets a little slow. Like when you start walking, you feel like you're walking a little bit in slow motion. And I said, I don't feel all that great. I'm going outside to get some fresh air. So I wandered outside to get some fresh air. 
And as I'm standing there, we're on a dock now outside the warehouse. More of the crew are coming out saying that they don't feel well and they don't feel well. And eventually, Josh comes out and he's standing on the tailgate of a truck. And he says, okay, the crew that doesn't feel well, I want on one side. The crew that feels okay, I want on the other side so that we can divide you up and find out how big this problem is. And as he's talking, more of the people that are on the good side that feel okay are moving over to the bad side. And finally, it came to the point where one of the wardrobe people go, oh, my God, I'm becoming bad crew and moved over to the bad side of us. So they loaded us into vans. And they drove us to a small hospital in Dartmouth because they knew that there was something wrong with us. And I'll never forget it. Our transportation, the driver who was driving our van, we pull into the parking lot and he puts it in park and he goes, we just made it. And I go, are you okay? He goes, no, I started feeling bad about two miles back. We just got here in time. So we get checked in. The the emergency room is like panicking because there's like 40 people coming in and we start They put us in and the doctor starts to diagnose us. And the only common denominator for everybody was that we had all had the seafood chowder. And so he diagnosed us with paralytic shellfish poisoning, which can be, which can be terminal. What, what is that? Certain shellfish eat plankton that's got a neurotoxin in it. And then you eat the shellfish that's got the plankton with the neurotoxin. And you absorb the neurotoxin in it. I think the first thing it does is it stops your breathing. So bad. So very bad. No, no, you're we're we're told that some of us are going to die. They told you that. The the hospital, the the staff said not all of you are gonna walk out tonight. Yeah, they said we're worried because this can be this can be fatal that some of you will have a problem, will not make it. That's when they started they uh, set up phones for us and allowed us to call back to wherever we were from because there wasn't that many of us from uh, California. There was a lot of Canadians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So were you so, terrified at this point? I mean, how were you? No, feeling? no, it was pretty panicking. I mean, I told, I got on the, I called my wife and told her to put the kids on the phone. I had two daughters and they oh were very God. little. I told her to wake them up and, and get them on the phone. And I told them I loved them and told them goodbye. And, oh my God. And Jamie, talked to my what, wife. What did, what did your wife say? She goes, what's, you know, what's going on? What? And I said, there's something wrong. And, We've been diagnosed with paralytic shellfish poisoning, and some of us may not make it. And she's like, okay. Now, she and I met on a movie called Kindergarten Cop. She was in yeah, the film business. She had I'm, been I'm familiar film with Kindergarten Cop's a real classic. It's an Arnie yes. classic. So she was in the film business, and our her cousin was post-production at Fox, because Fox was our producing studio. So she called her cousin tried to get information from them that was more clear than what my information was but she didn't get any more information so we uh it was crazy and i'd just like to point out that if you're getting high everyone talks about uh the setting you know and if the last thing you need is a doctor saying hey you know how you're sort of hallucinating a little bit and feeling a bit weird you might die that is the absolute last thing you need in that headspace and and it's the it's funny because the the symptoms that we were exhibiting at the beginning, the numbness and the this tunneling in and the slowness is all signs of a neurotoxin as well. Really? Oh, that's so inconvenient. Yeah, that wasn't real that was that was masking the fact that there was something else going on. And also you're in an emergency room 
So it's overhead fluorescent lights. It's really bright. It's linoleum floors, these orange plastic chairs. So one of the things that angel dust causes is massive paranoia because we noticed that none of us, first, none of us like to be alone. And the other thing that was happening was we were paranoid when we were alone and waiting for the doctor to examine you. You like all of a sudden people would come out of the uh, exam room and want to stay around more people because they were paranoid that being by themselves. So it was later that when we were told it was PCP and that causes paranoia, they they'd at least explained our sort of bizarre behavior. So now when we realized that we were not dying and we were living, the one of the last camera assistants to come into the emergency room was Devereaux, who was a Canadian, really fun guy, dreads, really interesting. And he came in and, and he was he had stayed at the studio because he thought he was okay. And then he started having delayed reaction. So they rushed him in on the studio into the emergency room. And he gets there. And for some reason, someone had a guitar. And I don't still don't know where it appeared from. <laughs> and he one of the one of the crew members was playing a guitar. And Devereaux gets takes the oxygen mask off, sits up on the gurney, and goes, you know what we need? A conga line. And the <laughs> and the, the guitarist started playing some Caribbean music, and we did a conga line around the emergency room for maybe like five, ten minutes. And then that's when everyone sort of realized, okay, it's not paralytic shellfish poisoning. We're not going to die. This may be okay. And then the real fun started when they realized that it was some sort of poison in our system. And to counteract poison, they give you liquid charcoal. And so they gave all of us liquid charcoal within this narrow window. They pulled up with this cart, a trolley full of containers of liquid charcoal, and you, they put a straw in it and you drink it. Well, the problem is that if you drink liquid charcoal, it adheres to whatever poisons in your system and then your body evacuates it. Yuck. I see where this is going. You get the runs. Yeah. You get diarrhea. There's nothing like nothing like diarrhea while you're hallucinating. And you give it to 40 people all at the same time. <laughs> There's not enough bathrooms in that hospital. You, I was sitting on a toilet. Someone was else was on a sink and someone's sitting on a trash can. It, there wasn't one. When we left, there wasn't one piece of uh, white porcelain. It was all gray from just, it was horrible. This was is like, it, pandemonium. Oh, no, it was completely crazy. And then our uh, uh, our main producer, John Landau, he had been in, a, in the plane flying back from Los Angeles. And he finally caught up to us. And he was like the only stable one of the group. Because it was everybody. I mean, it was Cameron. It was Caleb. It was the production manager who was the highest of the production people until Landau got there. We were, they were all, we were all in the same state. Hey, we're just going to stop here for a quick ad break, but stick around. We'll be right back with more What It Was Like. Hold up. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. I'm curious because you were saying before that uh, when James Cameron's on a shoot, he's the master of that domain. He is, it's his shoot. So right. in this situation, he's really lost control. So how was he taking that? He was by himself, literally not taking any control at all at this situation. He was in the same boat we all were. He was as high as the rest of you. He was just trying to live and make it through as long as he could. Was he? Did he participate in the Congo line? No. Okay. No, he did not. I'm curious. What was what was his response? Oh, he was he was laughing. He was with the guy playing guitar, and then there was <laughs> other people like Caleb and the production manager. We're discussing how we really knew we were screwed up, was discussing big circle, little circle, you know, what you can control and what you can't control. And so right. you're doing deep and meaningful philosophical conversations. Yeah, because you're fucking hiring a kite. Yeah. And, then, uh, <laughs> and then someone remembered passing an A&W a root beer place. And all of a sudden, through the crew, they talked about root beer floats. And the next thing you know, everyone wanted root beer floats. So John Landau got someone else in production and they opened up the fast food place and they brought us all root beer floats. Oof. How was it? It was great. Cause I mean, yeah. when you're completely out of your mind, 
you're sitting there sipping on a root beer float going, this is the best root beer float I've ever had, man. Yeah, yeah. And you get all emotional. But, you're like, oh, oh every, everyone did. It was it was great. <laughs> yeah, I love I love you, dude. And it was funny because one of the one of the crew members had come in and when I, we knew that we weren't feeling well, he came in and, and when we're standing out at the dock, he goes, are you OK? And I said, no, I'm not OK. I feel really weird. And he goes, I feel really weird, too. And then he looked at me and he goes, I'm fucked up. And I go, that's it. I'm fucked up. And I go, <laughs> I go, I looked at him. I go, what drugs have you taken? And he goes, well, I've taken this, this, and this, and this, and it's none of those. And he goes, you? And I said, well, I've taken all of those. And I've taken this, this, and this, and it's none of those either. So later, I think it was like maybe six weeks later that we got the message from the studio that they had had tested the food and it had come out. It was PCP. Yeah. That's what I immediately called him. Angel dust, dude. And the problem- <laughs> It was the one thing I haven't tried. No, well, no, neither one of us had ever tried it. But I will tell you one thing. The seafood chowder was fantastic. Mm. So angel yeah. dust must be a really good cooking condiment besides being you know, an animal tranquilizer. <laughs> because yeah, that yeah. was the best seafood chowder I've ever had. Really? It's got a bit of, bit of MSG to it. Just to, it's got stuff nice. in it. Yeah, but how yeah, crazy yeah. how crazy the filmmaking world is. We literally once like eight hours had passed and, and they all said, you're not going to die. Um, they stood at the door and they said, we we still got to finish shooting tomorrow. You know, we got to be back in Los Angeles. We're going to work tonight. And this was like eight in the morning and they wanted us back at like eight at night. Man. And we just like, no, we've just been in a hospital. We've been drugged. This yeah. is crazy. Yeah, and they uh, and they said no. Nope. You, you had to say goodbye to your children, and then they yes. wanted you to work the next night. That's and we that's... did. We worked. We worked the next night, and we moved from there to Mexico. And Caleb left the picture, and Caleb's uh, out. Yeah, right. And then did... once Caleb was gone, I didn't last much longer before I decided I would leave. Okay, what prompted you to leave? Um, so a little backstory. So when we were down crew, when we were having our focus problems on the B camera in Nova Scotia and Jim fired the focus puller. I went to Jim because Jim was the only one who would watch dailies. He watched it completely by himself at lunch. And so Jim and I had a conversation about focus and, and, and issues that we had with shooting. And I said, listen, Jim, I know a lot about cameras and lenses. I'm trained to deal with it from my dad being with Panavision and my time at Panavision. I know the difference between when equipment is malfunctioning and when a human being is malfunctioning and I can see it. I need to see the film. Yeah. And he said, okay, you can watch dailies. And so Jim and I would watch dailies together every day. They would bring us lunch. And yeah, so it would be nice. just Jim and I, well, we watched it on a flatbed and you really can't tell focus on a flatbed. So he would stop and he goes, that sharp. Yeah. It's sharp. Jim, Cause you can't really tell. But so he and I had that relationship. So I realized that when Caleb left, I was not going to stay on the movie as my only friend being Jim Cameron, because eventually that's going to bite you in the ass. Yeah, I can imagine. So it was my excuse when Caleb left. They, you know, they said, we'd really like you to stay. And I said, I'll stay for the transition, but I'll be out of here. Yeah, he reminds me of, uh, in some ways, there's a sort of Elon Musk quality to him. You know, he's a yes. bit of a polymath. He's across every aspect of the film from the sort of psychological insights of writing a script with a compelling narrative arc to just like the real nuts and bolts of, of cameras and the mechanics of the thing. 
Oh, no, he's he's very much involved with everything. And he is one of the first ones to tell most of the crew that he could do their job because he came up through the crew ranks. I mean, he came up through the art department and he's he's been hard crew. So he was happy to tell just about everybody that he could do their job. I was lucky enough that when he told me, you know, he started to have that conversation with me and I go, I'm happy to let you try. Yeah. You know, as a focus puller, go ahead, dude. Give it a shot because I know yeah. you can't do it. But I guess what I'm saying is that the shoot was punishing. You know, it was it was hard. It was very hard, especially when we got yeah. to the point, when they got to the point of sinking the ship. And there were definitely some injuries and, and it was going way over budget. Yeah. But one of the reasons that you also do it in Mexico is you're not constrained by some of the rules that you're constrained by doing it in the United States and in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, totally. You can burn through crew members. You can injure people. You can with... do stuff, all sorts of stuff. That, like I, I was lucky enough. I did a movie called Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World. That was one yeah, of the cam- I know it. Camera Russell Crowe. Yes, and in that movie, they uh, to escape from the French ship, the Asheron, they they row the boat into a fog bank. Yeah. So to make a fog bank here in in the United States, it requires you know special stuff. It has to be water based. It can't be caustic because you're going to breathe it and all of that in mexico diesel fuel and tires <laughs> oh god Ugh. but That's it creates a, a much better fog bank fantastic fog. much better yeah and uh we uh the wind shifted on us at lunch in master and commander and uh, literally we fogged in from rosarita up to tijuana wow okay so all right so it's a hard shoot it's it, Bit of a mess in, in Halifax. Um, and yet when the movie comes out, it is an immediate, you know, it, it set world records. It, it was one of the first movies to gross billions, not millions, but billions. Yeah, no, it's you have to, uh, Jim's, you know, the visual effects were fantastic. Jim did an amazing job. The editing was good. The story was great. And the acting was fabulous. I mean, you had some great actors. You know, Leo is brilliant. And that was one of the reasons you were willing to put up with some, with uh, some of the environment that you were in and things that were going on was because you knew that you were making uh, a movie that was going to be a hit. Yeah, yeah. So when it came out, knowing what you went through to participate in that film, were you were you relieved? Do you, did you feel that like that awful night in a hospital was it was all worth it because the film had been such a masterpiece? I only felt that it was worth it because I was alive. <laughs> if you'd been dead, not so yeah, worth if there, it. <laughs> if, if people had died during that part of it, then no, it would not have been worth it. In almost every big movie that you do, there is some experience that you go through that is crazy, that mm. is just the film business. And while you're going through it, you're miserable and you mm. hate it. But as soon as it's done, you come away and you go, well, I got a really good story now. Yeah. Um, but as long as you live, you know, as we have always said, as long as we live through it, you know, because it's, it is, uh, we do do things. I mean, once that makes filmmaking interesting is to go do things that are really hard and really um, stressful on your system and, yeah, and all everything that goes with it. So you do walk yeah. away at the end. If it's good, you walk away going, okay, that was worth going through. I'd do it again. Now I, I promised myself I would, I wouldn't work with Jim again, but that's another story. Tell me about 
So who put the PCP in the clam charter? Was someone ever arrested? And why? No, there was no one. We understand there was no one ever arrested. But so what we understand when we were on the Keldish, we were on the Russian research vessel. We were coming in one night. We'd been shooting and we ran out of daylight and we were coming back into uh, into port. And the craft service guy, because we all, there's a, a craft service gentleman who makes sure that you have food and water and, and things like that, that the caterer doesn't take care of, um, just snacks and things that, that we do. So he was smoking a joint and Jim Cameron caught him and had him fired. So he came by that day to pick up his paycheck. And okay. stopped by and talked because he was friends with the caterers and talked to the caterers talked to the crew, and then left. The next day, when we were after our adventure and we were going, getting ready to go to work, he ran into one of the crew members um, outside the hotel in, in Halifax and asked him how their trip was the night before. Oh, I'd say that's rather damning. That was really damning. And we, I don't know why the Canadian police, why he wasn't arrested, but... Because at one point we thought he was arrested and then, you know, like 40 counts of attempted murder or whatever. But yeah, yeah. Were you I don't... pissed off at him? You know, if you if you had a moment with him, what would you say? Oh, no, I there wouldn't be a lot of talking because it, <laughs> it was it was I, I don't having having had to make that phone call yeah. was just was heartbreaking. I never, yeah. ever, ever wanted to have that to be in that position of, you know, having to say goodbye to my children. That I may I may not make it to the sunrise. Yeah, that's that's awful. I mean, I think I think I was attracted to this story because because everything's big about this story. You know, it's it's like the one of the world's biggest blockbusters. It's a big shoot, uh, and then in the middle of all of this, you have this big weird drug experience. You know, it's, it's sort of you you prepared to meet your maker. Uh, everything about this story is big, and I think I think that's very cool as a headline. It's very cool. But what I'm learning talking to you is that actually it was kind of terrifying and um, you wish it hadn't happened. Oh, no, we all wish it hadn't happened because it, it's you never want to go through that. You never want to. Maybe if it had been worked out quickly that we were actually on a drug that wasn't going to kill us. Because also that's the other thing about PCP is the amount of PCP you have to ingest to make it um, to kill you is huge. Okay. So you were pretty safe. Yeah. It's a very... It's you're just going to be high. Yeah. So if if we in in hindsight, if we had known that we were just high, then you embrace the high and you go with yeah, it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But the fact that you don't know that you're high and you're experiencing it, and that they've told you that there's a good possibility you will die, that was, mm. that I, that you don't want people to go through. That sucks. I I mean, we're both in the uh, arts business here, and I I've tried some drugs, and I like to think that if I was getting high, I'd be like, hmm. This feels like I'm getting high. But of course, if someone tells you, like a doctor, someone tells you, no, 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 you're not getting high. You're experiencing the first signs of death. You know, yes. that would that'd just change. That would reformat the entire experience. No, no, that's what it does. It just reformats. And, it, and it's, a, it's a drug that mindset's important. So yeah. once, it, once you put you into that mindset, you're going to travel. You're going to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, so, that's the problem with it. Again, if we had, you know, bunch of bunch of filmmakers had definitely done some drugs so yeah. we it would have been fine would have been yeah. happy to go through it i heard uh i heard actually that bill paxton uh sort of smoked smoked some joints to to take the edge off 
I don't. I didn't. I've never smoked. I, well, when Billy, God rest his soul, when he was alive, I I never participated in that with him. We had conversations about things that we have done, but we never actually smoked any weed together. Because I did. <laughs> I also I did next of kin with Billy as well. Ah, yeah, so. yeah. Nice, nice. Well, look, I I really just have one question left, uh, and that is: so you retired from the film business now, yeah, uh, and you had a long career. Very. How does this rank as, as in terms of like crazy arduous film business experiences? How does this one rank? It's right up there with one of my best stories. <laughs> not it's, just not just one of your best stories through through work, but one of your best sort of life stories. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, going through that adventure. I mean, yeah. people just don't understand how crazy those that moment was when it shifted over. 15 minutes ago, we were dying. And the next thing you know, you're doing a conga line through the hospital. And then you've got the run. You know, it just, it became a thing. But we, you know, you have to, through a career of 40 years of doing crazy stuff, Titanic was definitely up there. You know, it was worth going through it, but it was a pain in the ass. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of alcohol had to be consumed as well. Mm, yeah, you're going gonna to need to uh, grease the wheels. Well, Jamie, I'm going to let you go, but I hope this was uh, if this was what you were looking for. I mean, I hope it absolutely, yeah, yeah. This is a wild story, and I I don't think many people know about it. People know Titanic, they know Leo, they know Kate Winslet. They there's a lot of phrases that have made their way into pop culture, but this is a story that for some reason just never quite got out, and I just think it it's such a weird, crazy story. Yeah, no, I think also one, I think it was because it was in Canada and it wasn't like here, and I think. They probably did try to, you know, suppress it as much as they could. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I know, I know that James Cameron's spoken about it lots. Uh, there was a, you know, there was a CBS thing I saw not too long ago where he was talking about it. He uh, he recommended that people don't try PCP. He said it was a bit of a shit drug. <laughs> it's not the most fun, <laughs> but as a cooking condiment, it may be really good. <laughs> so that's what we learned. Yes. All right, Jamie. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And it was a pleasure. Hey, a quick shout out to my dear friend, Brendan Norris, without whom this episode probably wouldn't have got made. I'd been trying to find someone who would talk about their experience on the Titanic shoot for quite a long time. So thanks, Brendan. You helped me to find Jamie. Uh, You helped this episode to get up. And you're awesome. If you've enjoyed today's episode and you're thinking, hey, I've got a story that's uh, that's pretty cool, something that could work for this show, you know, something interesting but surprising, a little bit unique, please get in touch, hit me up. I'm always looking for story suggestions or feedback or, you know, whatever you got. I'm Julian Morgans on Instagram and Morgans Julian on X. And you know what? We'd love you to follow the show. You know the, the follow button on whatever your podcast app is? Just press that we'll be eternally grateful. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Just a just a simple five stars should do it. You don't even have to overthink it. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Tuffrey. It was edited and mixed by Nicholas Feliciano. Jimmy Saunders did our theme music. Our cover art is by Naomi Lee Beveridge. And this whole thing has been a super real production. Thank you. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.